Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, we'll have a checkup on Louisiana's tech sector with Louisiana Economic Development. And as we look toward the transition to renewables and green, greener energy, we'll analyze how law and regulatory policy might affect Louisiana's energy economy. But first, since the spring of 2022, a team of attorneys and advocates have been traveling to detention centers in Louisiana every few months to educate immigrants about their legal rights. The visits are vital to their work, allowing them access to these remote facilities. And the stories that detainees tell can be hard to take in. Bobby Jean Missick from the Gulf States Newsroom rode along with members of the team to understand what it takes to do this work. Tanya Wolf drives past a tall pine forest in Pine Prairie, Louisiana. As the trees give way to local businesses and streets named after flowers, Wolf sees red and blue police lights. <sighs> We're getting pulled over. I wasn't paying attention. At some point, the speed limit had dropped from 55 miles per hour to 45 in what seemed like an instant. This isn't the first time we've been pulled over on these trips. Two other drivers on the team got tickets too. It's just one of the frustrations they go through when they visit immigration detention centers in rural Louisiana. Wolf works for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigration Justice Initiative. She's driving with her coworkers, Hannah Lopez, another advocate, and Sabrine Mohammed, an immigration attorney. They're part of a larger team that conducts legal rights presentations and one-on-one -on -one counseling to detainees. Mostly people who came here to seek asylum and are now stuck in detention. Almost all of my one-on-ones is just like, how do I get out of this place? Louisiana has eight detention centers and has the second largest detained immigrant population in the country. The trips allow advocates to learn about what's going on inside. One minute. On this day, the group goes to the South Louisiana Ice Processing Center in a town called Pazil. It's a woman's facility. In the parking lot, Lopez stacks boxes and boxes onto a dolly. It contains all of the pro se materials that we try to hand out. Right now, they're all in a state of complete disarray. This is the only way for the team to get vital legal rights information and forms to the detainees. Everything has to be on paper. So I'm just going to bring all these boxes in. And then the team disappears behind the facility's walls for seven or eight hours. All right, goodbye phone. Press isn't allowed in. Lopez is the first to come out. She sits in the rented minivan and wipes tears from her cheeks. She's had to tell a group of women that they should not send for their children. The women openly cry. So that paired with the questions, worried about the care of their children, it was just a lot. So, that was the first time I couldn't really hold it together in front of clients. Large mosquitoes are circling us. The facility is next to a crawfish farm. It's dusk and the blankets of blue, purple, and orange are spread over sprawling plains of swampy grass. Lopez is from South Louisiana. She used to love scenes like this, but it feels so unwelcoming now. I can't really appreciate or like really feel how beautiful it is knowing 
what's happening behind these doors, but also knowing. On the drive away from the detention center, she and Wolf and Sabrine Mohammed, the immigration attorney, talk about what they saw and heard. So every little rectangle of cement on the ground has its own little cage around it with its own. One person has high blood pressure and hasn't received their medication in days. And the Turkish girl started crying. She was like, I came by myself. Like, I don't have any family here. Like, I didn't cross with anybody. Nobody in my dorm speaks Turkish. It's a lot to carry. And these three women are some of the youngest on the team. But they also seem primed to do this work, drawn to it. They're all descendants of immigrants themselves. When she visits detention centers, Mohammed often thinks of her father, who moved here from Palestine. Lopez says she's inspired to do the work because of her Panamanian grandfather. And Wolf says, I feel like this has been my work my whole life, you know, just, you know, helping my dad study for his citizenship test. And I have family members who are undocumented. It's my life, like, it's my community, it's my family. And just like with family, one small win is a win for everyone. As they head away from the detention center, Wolf shares some good news. One of their clients has been released. The team will head back home after this week-long trip. But they'll return soon because they have to, because there are people here who need their help. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Bobby Jean Mizick. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Eyes have been on the tech sector in Louisiana as a force to bring high-quality, well-paid jobs to the state. To take the temperature of the tech sector here as we blaze through the first quarter of 2023, we have Chris Stelly, Executive Group Director of Entertainment and Digital Media with Louisiana Economic Development. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So how has the tech sector in Louisiana been managing ever since it became one of the priorities for the state? Yeah, it's been growing significantly in our state. I mean, just to highlight some of the numbers from last year, in calendar year 2022, we certified over $121 million in direct in-state spending, with roughly $104.6 million of that being dedicated towards Louisiana resident payroll. What's the biggest economic development news as of late in the state's tech sector? Oh, yeah. Recently, we had Accela, a software development shop out of New Orleans. We've had an expansion of GDIT, um, which is a company based in Shreveport that expanded down into New Orleans. We've had CGI over in Lafayette. Rural Sourcing, NVOC, Mastery Prep here in Baton Rouge, um, Antares, Geocent, CDIT. Yeah, speaking of that, tell me about one relatively recent piece of news, the tech company Excella proposing to come to New Orleans with a hub for the company there. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? Oh, tremendous. It adds to our ecosystem. You know, we've worked over the course of the past few years in building up our workforce, building up our ability to be attractive to companies like Excella. And it's not necessarily about hard infrastructure and physical assets. It's about intellectual infrastructure. It's about the talent that, that they have access to and the workforce training programs that they have access to 
as well as university programs, whether it's at LSU, Loyola, UNO. So um, Louisiana is one of those states that's certainly poised to be a big player in the tech sector, and we already are. Yeah, tell me about intellectual infrastructure. That's something that you can't touch, you can't put a finger on. It's an intangible. How do you put that forward as an incentive? That's a good question. You know, we, we, we do have data on how our programs have generated more and more graduates in computer science and technology-related fields. Um, so I think you can point to it. And as big as the tech sector may seem, all of these companies are talking to each other so they can get a feel for what we have. And at the end of the day, we still have to deliver the workforce. So the fact that we continue to attract more and more companies, they're able to clearly meet their workforce development or their workforce needs. Chris, can you just tell me some of those names that I heard? What do some of those companies do? Right. So so CGI and Lafayette, for example, they do multiple software development projects for not only the federal government, but also for the private sector as well. I mean, this group, for example, originally intended to hire roughly 400 Louisiana residents, and I think they're well over a thousand. You've got Pixel Dash, which is a local video game company here in Baton Rouge. Um, Antares, Geosynth, they do multiple traditional software developments, whether it's medical software and the big push for digitizing records and things like that. So a lot of that programming and a lot of that uh, software development activity is occurring right here in Louisiana. We're speaking with Chris Stelly with Louisiana Economic Development. We're talking about Louisiana's tech sector. Tell me, Chris, what are the biggest challenges we face in Louisiana in developing our tech sector? Yeah, early on, um, I think the biggest challenge was workforce and the capable skill sets to develop software. I think when you have an outward uh, expansion of an industry in a state like Louisiana, everything had to fall into line together. So as we're attracting companies, we're working with workforce development agencies and also our Fast Start program. Um, I think we've been ranked the number one workforce development program in the nation for 14 years straight, 13, 14 years straight. So it's been a lot of of investment, a lot of investment of time and resources into workforce development programs, but also working with universities like LSU to beef up their computer science program and start to show that we are attracting these companies so that our young people can stay in Louisiana, so that people that may have moved out of Louisiana can come back, reversing the brain drain. Chris, tell me, what is the best realistic size for Louisiana's tech workforce? How could that workforce compare to some of our other staple industries like the energy sector, uh, tourism, and agriculture? Yeah, you know, ideally I'd like the tech sector to be – I mean this is the future of the workforce. This is the future – the future um, uh, in my opinion. And I think that as we continue to further diversify our economy here in Louisiana, tech can stand alongside energy agriculture, tourism, and other industries that we're working to attract. I think um, there's also other efforts that will, of course, help drive the tech uh, sector here in Louisiana. There's been a big push uh, by the governor to bring connectivity to the entire state, 
not only in urban areas, but rural areas, and more importantly. So the more connectivity, for example, that we bring to our rural areas, the more quality of place that we can promote. Because you can live in Bogalusa, you can live in Gross State, Louisiana, where I'm from, uh, and you can program, you can develop software, because all it takes is a computer and good connectivity, and these people can work anywhere in the state in building the tech sector. So as we know very well, if we listen to the news, it's fairly common for the state to offer incentives, incentive packages to companies to move to the state or to expand here or to invest here. How do the incentives we're offering tech companies compare to the impressive incentives that we're known for offering to heavy industry? How does that compare? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, again, Louisiana, going back to 2002, when we started with our film incentive program, we were trailblazers in looking at other industries to attract. Our digital media program came along in 2005, and it was modeled off of our film incentive program. But at that time, it was the only standalone statutory program that was geared towards the tech industry. Now, at that time, it was specific to video game development. But it, since that time, it has been expanded. And it's, it's still a very unique program in that there's not that many other states offering it. We offer up to 25% of your Louisiana resident labor costs. So that's a significant attraction to companies. But more importantly, all of the companies that we deal with are mainly focused on how deep our workforce is. So incentives, while they play a part of it, it's really about the whole ecosystem that we've been able to build. And speaking of workforce, what are the incentives we offer to employees? How might the tech sector be reaching out to workers in the state who never considered a job in tech to convince them to give it a try? Is this a focus on stemming the brain drain, or are we primarily looking at attracting workers to Louisiana to live and work here? I think it's both. It absolutely is both. In fact, we'll, we'll host uh, job fairs with our partner companies to attract uh, people from other comparable markets. Um, Louisiana, again, offers a unique joie de vivre, if you will, but also an ecosystem of like-minded individuals that they can come in and participate in different activities with other software developers. And I think just from a practical standpoint, we offer better cost of living, where if you are making what we see on average is roughly $75,000 to $100,000 a year jobs, which is comfortable here in Louisiana, more of your income is not spent on necessities. So I think it's attractive to not only reversing the brain drain or preventing the brain drain, but also from someone that just wants to work in a good job and live in a place that has such a rich history and culture and other aspects that you don't get anywhere else in the world. All right. Well, Chris Stelly with Louisiana Economic Development, thanks for being here today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Law and policy on the national level have the potential to transform the energy sector in Louisiana. An economy currently heavy in fossil fuels might start leaning toward renewables and carbon capture, and offshore might start embracing offshore wind in addition to offshore 
oil and gas wells. Experts at LSU Law Center are addressing these anticipated changes to the energy landscape. They held a recent symposium discussing offshore oil drilling, offshore wind development, carbon capture storage, and environmental social governance. To give us some more context, we have Keith Hall, director of the Mineral Law Institute and a professor of energy at uh, energy law at LSU Law Center. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. So, Keith, the LSU Journal of Energy Law held a symposium last month. It was titled Congressional Action in the Energy Transition. From what was shared there, what do you think are the primary ways national policy and energy law will affect Louisiana's energy sector in the near future? I think the biggest effect is going to be the encouragement of things to address climate change. And that comes down to a couple of things. One, encouraging carbon capture and storage, and second, doing things to encourage increased use of renewable sources of energy. Uh, I think the transition away from fossil fuels is going to take a, a good while, but the biggest change for us is going to be these new industries, carbon capture and renewables. And the approach nationally, is it more of a carrot and less of a stick right now as far as how it will affect Louisiana? It is more of a carrot. Uh, So far, the policy has not been to discourage oil and gas exploration production too much. There may be exceptions with respect to some of the federal leasing where the Biden administration has uh, placed moratoria on federal leasing. But most of the new provisions have been to offer carrots to spur carbon capture to withdraw CO2 from the atmosphere or prevent it from going into the atmosphere in the first place and encourage solar, wind. So it's been more carrots, fewer sticks so far. How soon do you think some of those effects will be seen here? Yeah, I think we'll see them soon. On carbon capture, one of the ways, the main way that the federal government is encouraging that is with significant tax credits. And we're already seeing four contracts where Louisiana has granted carbon capture and storage pore space rights for the subsurface pore spaces on state lands. And the companies are already doing work there. So you've seen some income to the state and the projects that are in the very early evaluation stages. You also have private landowners, particularly private landowners who have large pieces of land who are having carbon capture companies come and ask to lease poor spaces. So we're already seeing that. The wind um, is a little further behind, but we're starting to see interest in Gulf of Mexico leasing. I think that'll be a little further down the line. Uh, We're also seeing solar, and that's been interesting that we've had some utility-scale solar uh, farms go into Louisiana. And curiously, it's actually gotten some pushback from some locals who don't like the way solar panels look, who think they look too industrial. What what do you say to that pushback? I know some of it is based not on aesthetics but on on other concerns. Yeah, it's not all aesthetics. Now, the aesthetic concern expressed by some people is they think it looks industrial and therefore they may wish for there to be, say, vegetative screening to kind of screen the view. But there have been other um, concerns, uh, land use concerns, some of the agriculture interests, particularly farmers who lease land, see this as a competitor and this could mean that it drives up the price for leasing land. Now, it may be good for the landowner, but for the tenant Farmers who who operate on leased land, that could be bad. And also, uh, because solar farms don't have a high number of people employed once the construction's done, it may mean fewer jobs. And that has been a concern expressed by some people if you replace agriculture jobs with a fewer number of solar jobs. 
We're speaking with Keith Hall, director of the Mineral Law Institute and professor of energy law at LSU Law Center. We're talking about how federal national energy law and policy is anticipated to affect Louisiana's energy economy. Keith, this concept of environmental social governance, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Can you explain it to us and tell us how that works into a legal and policy framework? Sure. Um, The environmental social governance, or ESG it's sometimes called, movement, is a, a movement that suggests that corporations traditionally have been focused on earning uh, as much as they can for the shareholder, consistent with the law, should also consider other factors such as environmental impacts, societal good, and so forth. And this is somewhat controversial because there are still advocates that, you know, your, your goal is to make money for the shareholders and the law sets public policy. But the number of ESG advocates that say companies should start considering a broader range of things, and the environmental part would say they should consider whether, uh, aside from thinking about their own profits, whether they should be considering the environmental good of society. And uh, some people suggest that climate justice or environmental justice concerns should be considered often some of the industrial areas where you have the biggest concentrations of industrial plants, for example, are not in your most affluent neighborhoods. And ESG advocates bring forward that a disproportionate impact of the, I guess, the negative externalities of these industries from which we all benefit, but which are also negative externalities such as pollution, are uh, faced by some of the lower income disadvantaged communities and that that should be given more consideration and perhaps adjust how and where we operate industrial facilities. What's the conversation there? How does environmental social governance work into a legal framework? It sounds like very much like something that can't be enforced in some way, you know? Yeah, well, the it is something where there is, hard, I think, probably harder to have bright line rules. But whenever you are, are a regulatory agency, it's considered, do we grant permits for a particular project? Environmental agencies already are considering, is uh, the neighborhood or the area where you want to locate this one that's already you know, putting up with a lot of industry, I guess could be a way of putting it. And so it's coming in as not a bright line rule, but as a consideration. And so I think you're starting to see some pressure that's not a specific rule, but the pressure to think about things to cushion the impact that a facility might have uh, on uh, on the population in a general area. And in some cases, it might actually uh, defeat a project. Uh, the EPA has whole guidelines on considering social governance and considering whether to grant permits, for example. Hmm. And you're from LSU's law school. You specialize in law, specifically energy law. Is the legal framework the tool that will address all of the issues and concerns we're anticipating with the energy transition? Yeah, I, I think the legal framework is going to play a big part. For example, you know, economics certainly can drive transitions as you have a new industry. You know, but through incentives for renewables, I think you can spur uh, research and the development of those. And once we start doing those, the engineers get better at the projects. We're already seeing, aside from any subsidies of some of the renewable source of energy, we're starting to see costs come down for those projects. And that's typical when an industry becomes more mature. And for carbon capture and storage, 
really, unless there's a, a tax credit or something, you know, what economic benefit are you going to have from sticking a CO2 in the ground? There has to be government pushing for that. So I think a lot of the transition will be speeded up or maybe dependent entirely on these regulatory frameworks that we're starting to see. We've been speaking with Keith Hall, director of the Mineral Law Institute and professor of energy law at LSU Law Center. Keith, thanks for being on Louisiana Considered. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to Bobby Jean Missick for her report, to Chris Stelly from Louisiana Econom- Economic Development, and Chris Hall from LSU's Law Center. Our managing producer is Lana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.